The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. It's been entertaining from this side of the Irish Sea to have been watching what's gone on all week in Britain. The ousting of Boris Johnson. Well, he hasn't quite gone yet. He's still hanging in there while they find a new leader to replace him. And we don't know how long that's going to take. That's something we'll get to after five o'clock. But let's remind ourselves of some of the carries on, carrying on have gone on over the last week. Prime Minister, do you accept it was a grave error to appoint Chris Pincher to your government? Yes, I think it was a mistake. We're just hearing that Sajid Javid has resigned. What? I'm terribly sorry, we have to stop there. Rishi Sunak has resigned, the oh, Chancellor has resigned, that is it. Look, this, Matt, we've talked about this before. Boris Johnson should never, ever, ever have been Prime Minister. There been seven more resignations. This is a night of resignations. As for those who are left, the charge of the lightweight brigade. <laughs> Does the Prime Minister think there are any circumstances in which he should resign? But frankly, Mr Speaker, the job of a Prime Minister in difficult circumstances when he's been handed a colossal mandate is to keep going, and that's what I'm going to do. The earliest date that I can see for a general election is two years from now. It's being reported that there's a uh, delegation of your Darren, cabinet colleagues Darren, waiting in Downing Street you're, to tell you're you today that to it's time for you to go. On, this conversation uh, will happen in a few minutes, Prime Minister. Say, you say. I'm just hearing from a very high-level government source telling me that it's done. It's done. He needed a final push, push rather, but it is done. A couple of things. Firstly, we need to make sure that we keep the basic functions of government going. Uh, that's really important. There are, for example... Uh, no ministers in DfE at the moment. That needs to be sorted out. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. OK, Aoife Barry from the Journal.ie, Michael Foley from the Sunday Times are with us. And Michael, are you old enough to be able to identify that piece of music that was playing there and put it in context for us? <laughs> oh, God, yes. Oh, God, I am. Uh, the Benny Hill team tune from the Benny Hill show. I've often wondered, actually, Matt, you know, looking, looking from my age back down to younger people than I, if you try to explain what the Benny Hill show was <laughs> to a new generation now and why it was funny and why it was like the centrepiece of, I think it was ITV's comedy output for decades, you'd have a job and a half. Like, you know, a kind of elderly squat comedian running around after scantily clad women. Um, not sure it would quite... I'm not sure it would quite roll, no. That I, I don't think it would. No. Although that said, is it any less, was it any more offensive than Love Island? Oh, oh God. No, well, no, think, no, I'm in deep and swampy yes. waters. <laughs> it's a different generation, shall we say. Different generation. I wouldn't watch now. Um, yeah, but that, that music certainly uh, added a certain kind of vibe to the uh, background there in Westminster when you had really serious conversations happening. Where well, I tell she? people why it was playing in the first place. Yeah, go on, explain that. Uh, yeah, well, Hugh Grant um, was uh, tweeted to a guy who was present in the area, one of the kind of, I suppose, anti-Boris protesters, shall we call them, um, on the day 
uh, where obviously you'd have a lot of press kind of gathered recording what's happening and interviewing people and said to him, oh, I hear that your speakers are back working, something along those lines. Will you play the Benny Hill theme tune, knowing that that song would go out in the background of any interviews happening in that location? And indeed, the, the gentleman did. And that is why you could hear it in the clip there behind. Very serious interview with the future of the British <laughs> government. You have um, Benny Hill playing in the background, which kind of, I think, underscores the the circus kind of nature of a lot of what happens in, in politics. Yeah, in, I want to get clear a few of the things that happened during the it was Michael, what was very interesting as well was that on more than one occasion, Boris Johnson or his acolytes claimed that he had a mandate, that he had 14 million votes, which is really interesting because the British system differs from ours in that they don't have proportional representation, but they don't directly elect their prime minister like we don't directly elect our Taoiseach. It's not like the United States of America. And yet he clung to this idea that a vote for a Tory was a vote to make him the prime minister, which was an interesting way of looking at things. Well, it was, and it's a very Trumpian way of looking at things. And I think if you look at everything from his resignation speech to the way that the whole thing has been conducted uh, even ever since. Um, you know, he's setting the ground. He's setting the ground for a rewriting of the history of his own premiership. The idea that, as you say, that he had this mandate from the people. I mean, if you think back to that British election, I mean, the mandate was to get Brexit done, um, which was done. So, I mean, by the virtue of getting elected, his job was done. His, his reason to be had more or less essentially ceased once he was actually elected Prime Minister. From that moment on, it was just a ticking clock in terms of how long he could hang on. So, like, but it is, it is interesting that, he, that they keep referring to that mandate, as you say. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a vote for Boris in every single scenario. And I do think that, you know, when you look again at his resignation speech, it's all, a lot of it, it was not, I mean, it's all, I think it was Beth Rigby on Sky described it as dignified. It was not dignified. <laughs> like, I mean, he, I mean, the one thing that, that, that struck me was there's a kind of a boilerplate line in these things where you, you know, essentially say, I will give the, the next leader my full support. He didn't even do that. You know, he just left in it in as much as he could with more or less his, what he said. Yeah, he kind of indicated that he would. But yeah. if, is there not a point that for a lot of people, their vote isn't actually for the local, even here in Ireland, that if you go back to the 80s, Charlie Hawhey versus Gareth Fitzgerald, the whole debate was about which one you wanted to be Taoiseach. Every debate that we have prior to a general election is between prospective Taoiseach. That mm. there will be a lot of people who will vote for Sinn Féin in the next election because they want Mary Lou Macdonald to be Taoiseach. Yeah. So maybe Boris Johnson had a point. Yeah, it's not like he was kind of absent from the debate or that people didn't know that that was in play. And I suppose people do want, you know, people do often vote uh, to do with the party but they know who the members of the party are too and who are in, you know, kind of in the front running, who are the people that are potentially going to take up the post, who's the next person that might, might naturally take up the role. I mean, I suppose like when you look at now, we're going to be dis- you're going to be discussing later on the programme who potentially might take up Boris Johnson's role. So even if none of them were in the running in the first place, people have, would have known they were voting for these people to take up some sort of role of power. And I mean, Mark Boris Johnson obviously is someone too who like even if he didn't get that mandate per se, I think in his mind he would have gotten the mandate, if you get me, because he likes to believe he's one people want. Who was Chris Pincher? Just explain who this guy was, who effectively the lies that Boris Johnson told about him brought Boris Johnson down. Yeah, so uh, Chris Pincher, like he's somebody who people wouldn't have really known a lot about in Ireland anyway, certainly up to recently. And I think that's the interesting thing as well. You get a lot of MPs who are like, never heard of them before when they resign and things like that. Um, so he was basically appointed by Boris Johnson as the Deputy Chief Whip. And this role basically meant that he had to maintain discipline among his fellow Conservative MPs. 
um, that particular role also meant that he had to have kind of a sense of pastoral care responsibilities for for his colleagues too. So that's a big role. I mean, you're giving somebody a role you've, you've been appointed to it by Boris Johnson. He had full oversight over this. Then Chris Pincher ends up resigning last weekend. He was accused by two men of drunkenly groping them at private members clubs in, in London. That was obviously put it, put out in the press Um and it turned out that the Prime Minister declined to suspend Pincher from the party, but also after there was more allegations reported, it included the kind of discussion that whether or not Johnson knew that there was this talk in the background of whether or not Chris Pincher was Pincher by name, Pincher by nature, or whether or not he didn't have oversight over it, and that he, whether he was briefed or not about that. And then and when it he, admitted, he had he was been briefed, briefed, but then he forgot yeah. about it. He because said he had my, forgotten that this had Michael happened. Foley, yeah. that's exactly what you'd forget about, isn't it? If you were told that somebody working for you, who you were going to promote, had, had various allegations of sexual assault made against him, you'd forget that, wouldn't you? Completely and utterly would slip my mind. I'd be kind of more. I so it's, it's unbelievable, isn't it, that that, yeah, that might happen? And I mean, like, actually, maybe it's not unbelievable because this sort of thing clearly does happen. Well, and it's just a sign of a, of a system where this thing is allowed to go but, on. But could it also be, I mean, Johnson has been accused himself of groping women at lunches. Uh, I think there was one famous lunch that at one stage he's apparently groped one woman in either side of him, but one didn't <laughs> respond. He tried with the other. Um, I mean, he's also a man who famously can't clarify how many children he's had by various different women. Could it be that, I mean, he actually didn't really particularly take the allegations against this man seriously? And in fact, I think some of them are, some of the MPs are really annoyed because he implied that they should have intervened to have stopped the pincher doing what he was doing. Well, it, it, it all feeds back into this kind of wild tornado that he enjoyed to create at all times during his premiership, you know, this sort of idea that look at what's going on over here, you know, don't be concentrating on, you know, the, the explosions happening over here. Look over here at this stuff and, you know, create chaos, create chaos the whole time. And I think this was just a bridge too far for him. I think, I mean, I think one of the things that probably um, did for him in the end was the fact that he, he they were sending people out to bat for him in the media and they were being briefed by Downing Street and then they would they would come back and say, well, I don't think we were told the absolute truth there and we were sent out to... And well, they brief become complicit in the lies. And they become complicit in the lies and all of a sudden then they can, then at that moment, they can go, oh, oh, my integrity Michael, is potentially what, being threatened what, here. What about the argument, though, that the small things don't matter? He got the big issues right. Now, the big issues being well over, what was it, a million people dying of COVID? Well, was it that many? Well, it wasn't. That's the United States figure. But still, I think per head of population, they had one of the biggest death rates. And yet they claimed he got the big questions right. He got the fastest, best vaccination program in the world, even if he didn't. Yeah, exactly. And it's like one of these, if you drill down at all into the big, into these big achievements, they fairly come apart. You know, it's a, they're, they're all foundations are, are sand. Um, and it, again, it comes back to what we were talking about at the top, this idea of having this enormous mandate from the people. Uh, again, this Trumpian approach to things, uh, you know, I, you know, I'm just talking about the big stuff. I'm just dealing with the big issues. I nailed the big issues and now let's move on to the next big thing. What's the next big thing? And so on and so forth. And when you have, when you have, to be fair, uh, when you have this, the kind of charisma that he has and the ability to draw and hold a crowd as he, as he clearly ha- had, has done, uh, you can you can get away with that stuff. That can take you an awful long way. Neck gets you an awful long way in politics. And he has a, and, he's a lot of neck, all right. You know, and he, 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 it got him this far. I just think that this particular this particular one. Look at it was it was coming quite quite a while. It was kind of amusing watching some of the the news the well, news shows. It was. They had those little. 
those little tickers in the corner with the, uh, <laughs> the numbers with the ministers dropping like flies. Do you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of those, you know, those um, trailer parks in America where they have like three days without a tornado. <laughs> it's like we've gone, we've gone five minutes without a ministerial resignation. Maybe he has a chance. Maybe well, he has. Well, a chance. well, one final thing just on this, and this would be the the kicker to, of all kickers that one of the reasons allegedly that he wants to wait until September before stepping down is that he wants to marry Carrie who is the mother of his two latest children, mm. who would be his third wife, at Checkers. He yeah. wants to use this special weekend location where Churchill used to go during mm-hmm. the Second World War, his great hero, and have his wedding there. Yeah, that that was such an amazing story that emerged yesterday after he um, had handed in his notice, shall we say, um, that basically he wanted to hang on allegedly because he had planned this July wedding party. He definitely had planned the wedding party in Checkers. It's in Buckinghamshire uh, for the end of the month. Like they had had a small ceremony um, with around 30 guests because of COVID restrictions. I mean, let's not mention part Gate, which is many people would have thought he would have fallen on his sword then, but he obviously didn't. Um, but it, in the last couple of hours, I was reading up on this and apparently it's since been moved. So they did send save the dates to people um, from when I was reading to turn up at Checkers. But this has since been moved, obviously, because he was getting it in the neck over, and over this. I'd say, Michael Foley, it'll be interesting to see who ends up paying for his wedding because they'll probably end up getting a knighthood or a lordship in mm. his uh, honours list, which he's allowed to do as he leaves office. Indeed, indeed he is. I mean, that's the thing to keep, to keep in mind, and you said it yourself, Matt. I mean, he's not gone yet. He's got a couple of, we've got a couple of more months of this dustbin fire, even though he's insisting that he, you know, he's going to just keep it between the ditches for the couple of months. I, I wouldn't be so sure. A story I wasn't actually aware of, Michael, from the world of sport, which is interesting. Uh, Sepp Blatter, the former boss of FIFA, Michel Platini, once one of the greatest footballers many of us have had the opportunity to see play uh, for France and Juventus and other teams, then the boss of UEFA, both of whom left their positions in disgrace and were regarded as crooksters in their positions. And yet, what has happened with the uh, corruption charges brought against them? Yeah, uh, they were both cleared of those charges uh, in a Swiss court today. Um, they kind of, I suppose, to go back a little bit, um, this all stemmed from an enormous uh, investigation around 2015 into bribery and fraud, money laundering and FIFA. Um, that, as you say, ultimately ended with Blatter uh, being removed from his post as the head of FIFA and uh, Platini's career essentially torpedoed as well. Um, so we've been waiting since then uh, for for this case. Um, it essentially centred on a two million Swiss franc payment from Blatter to Platini uh, for work as an advisor. Now, obviously that was seen as fraud. That was the accusation. What was said in court was, was that Platini had come on board between 98 and 02 as an advisor to Blatter um, Two million was his, uh, his suggested salary. Blatter said, we can't afford that. FIFA was broke, imagine. Uh, and give him 300,000 Swiss francs instead as a salary. Uh, and kind of said, look, I'll sort you out for the rest. Um, so years passed. Uh, eventually in 2011, um, the payment was approved. This was also around the time that said Blatter was campaigning for re-election to his post against Mohammed bin Hammam of Qatar. And Platini was at that time president of UEFA. So the implication here is obviously that look, it's it's money for votes, uh, but the, uh, the 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 courts today found that no, it wasn't. They were both acquitted, and uh, I saw some footage of Platini this morning, absolutely engulfed by media outside, uh, looking very much cutting cutting very much the gate of a relieved man. Say so was. Now we're coming close to July twelfth, 
and you have the Orange Order and Unionist celebrations north of the border because of that. And for the night before the 12th, you have massive bonfires are built. How big is the biggest one, Aoife, that's planned for this July 12th? Um, well, there's one that's got, I think, 233 pallets. It's going to reach about 100 and, more than 198 foot tall if it reaches the, the uh, height that they wanted to reach in uh, County Antrim in the, in the Craggy Hill area. Um, last year, they had 286 pallets, so I think they're, uh, that they've, they've beat their... Uh, their record there but yeah these people I mean, have size issues uh, yeah like they're, every year I suppose it's the idea of like trying to kind of do better than you did the year before but the issue with these absolutely huge bonfires is as you can tell from any photos that you've ever seen them that they tend to be quite near often um, where people are living because obviously they're, they're in local areas where people are living um, there's one in the one that is in this Craggy Hill area is about 50 metres away from a, a children's play park and I mean again the photos that you're seeing the houses do look fairly near but again that can be a matter of perspective but there is a lot of concern about it because because, you know, like these pirates do trend, do tend to get a lot of attention because a lot of work goes into them. They have a very kind of symbolic a reason um, dating obviously back to, uh, to 1690 um, as to why they're actually built in the first place. But there's always concerns about, you know, whether they're safe, the health and safety issues. And also we have obviously seen sectarian issues where there have been posters that people put up on them when they were set on fire. Or tricolours. Tricolours, exactly. You know, KAT, those kind of things put on them as well. So like they are every single year you're going to get a story about about these and there's you know if you read this interview that's in the Belfast Telegraph the, the Sinn Féin people are saying they have lots of concerns about it. The DUP are saying they haven't heard any concerns this year. So there's obviously on, on the kind of two sides of discussion there, some people are hearing a lot of complaints and some people aren't hearing I'd imagine though, complaints. Michael Foley, that lots of people that maybe even of the unionist tradition are afraid to speak out that they would be bullied if they said anything. There's no doubt about it. I mean... The, the the issue of bonfires to me to me is actually quite interesting. I mean, that DUP councillor in, in the Telegraph, James McKeown, describes it as a feat of engineering. Like, I mean, you know, you always think if these guys had just re, refocused themselves, like for one thing, they'd have the bridge to Scotland built twice over if they had refocused <laughs> that level of engineering. But the thing, I, I watched a documentary during the year, Patrick Keelty. Uh, was 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 the main presenter on it. It was eventually, it was essentially Keelty, obviously, whose father was killed during the Troubles, going back to Northern Ireland and and meeting both sides, both sides of the community on the occasion of the centenary of the state. And one of the things he did was actually visit uh, a place where they were building a bonfire and talk to young loyalists. And the thing that struck me was the lads. The lads were talking about rioting in particular. This is around a time when some buses in Belfast had been had been torched for no real reason if ever there is a reason to torture but um but they made the point they made the point that, that why do you do it? it it's to be seen they said it's to be noticed it's to be seen by london actually one of them said which i thought was amazing um and to me that sense of wanting to be seen is such an essential part of a strain of unionism loyalism that you know that that feeling that no one no one sees us even though this is such an integral part of our identity and i think the building it might seem a bit obvious but i think the building of bonfires and the fact that they can draw this attention and how big can we build them it's a number one it's a, it's a statement of of resilience from their side of things but it's also a statement that we are not going away and I, and this is i say this now while obviously you know, echoing all the things Aoife mentioned there about health and safety and all those those those, those issues. I mean, they are absolutely outrageous looking things. And like this isn't, I mean, for people, I'm sure people are aware of them anyway, but this isn't Guy Fawkes stuff. I mean, last year they had whatever about Sinn Féin election posts and so on. I remember Naomi Long, the, the leader of the Alliance Party, was was quite disturbed to see one of her election posts up on a bonfire as well. So this, this stuff... Um, 
it's 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 poisonous to some degree. It's a pity, in a way, when you look at them, there are extraordinary structures. In another world, in a parallel universe, we could be looking at these in an entirely more controlled environment. Going, aren't they just extraordinary? Listener says, in the late 80s, I was 11 years old. I was up in Belfast visiting my cousins. They thought we should go out and see the bonfires for the 12th. And in my lovely southern accent, I said, why are they burning our flag? My cousins quickly shut me up. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, again, it is kind of, it's sad to see every year the same um, issues cropping up. Now, that that said, to to date this year, I haven't seen any of that kind of activity going on. But obviously, it's not the 12th of July yet. So, um, but see what happens over the week. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I think that when you read, kind of reading between the lines as well of the interviews that people did, there's a lot of discussion around like, you know, kind of community uh contact between people and members of the community communication and, and making sure that that's going well and people feeling that, that that's going well but at the same time you have underneath it all of these kind of you know decades and years of history and the symbolism and what you're talking about there Michael as well about being seen and who's listened to and who's heard and these these you know bonfires can be used as a symbol of community but they can also be a symbol of division for people too as with everything that's kind of heightened in, in this kind of situation and it'll be interesting to see I suppose how this year's that's the other thing actually that's worth noting. Sorry, yeah, yeah. It's like last year there was over 230 bonfires in Northern Ireland. Just just to get an idea of the, the size of this, 230 plus bonfires. The fire brigade were called out 34 times to deal with specific bonfire related incidents. So you know that's another thing. It's it's a drain on. It's, it's well, a drain on there, low local services. Here's a way of actually stopping them because the listener says, I don't like bonfires, but they are a Celtic cultural symbol and one of the main ways St. Patrick oh. converted the Irish to Catholicism. Let them all know that and that'll stop the bonfires. Oh. Michael Drop Foley, some pamphlets. Michael Foley from the Sunday Times, Aoife Barry from the Journal.ie. Thank you both for joining us. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here.